0: listening to the revealer podcast where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities produced by the center for religion and media at nyu and hosted by me dr brett crutch each month we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics in people's lives and throughout our world In today's show, we're discussing issues of gender and sexuality in Mormon communities. What are the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints current positions on gender and the place of queer Mormons? Why has the LDS Church been so politically active for the past several decades to oppose LGBTQ and gender equality? How does race factor into discussions about gender and sexuality in Mormon communities? And what are we to make of the most recent pop culture focus on Mormon issues of gender in the Bravo reality show The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City? Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. I'm very happy to be joined today by Dr. Taylor Petrie. He is the author of the book, Tabernacles of Clay, Sexuality and Gender in Modern Mormonism, available now. You can read an excerpt from his book in the upcoming March issue of The Revealer at therevealer.org. Hi, Taylor. It's great to chat with you. How are you doing today? Great, Brett. Thanks for having me. Of course. So I have to say, I really enjoyed reading your book, and I learned quite a bit about the specifics of the Mormon Church and sort of the uniqueness of the uh, Mormon leadership structure, especially related to issues of gender and sexuality that are sometimes quite different from other conservative religious communities, which I really appreciated. So as I read your book, I have to say that I had this sense, really sort of chapter after chapter, that for the past several decades, Uh, Mormon leaders have had somewhat intense anxiety about changing gender roles and about the increased cultural acceptance of same-sex relationships and, in turn, have invested lots of money, lots of time, lots of energy into trying to block some of these cultural shifts. In other words, it's not just been about saying, you know, we're not going to subscribe to these ideas within this community, but really focused on generally trying to prevent some of these changes from happening particularly in the United States. So I'm wondering if we could start by you talking a bit about where that anxiety comes from and what some of the concerns have been among Mormon leaders if, for example, gay people could get married or if there was greater gender equality. How do you explain this anxiety and and what's the concern about broad cultural shifts related to gender and sexuality?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's more than fair to say that Latter-day Saint leaders and, and the community in general have been uh, spent a lot of time and attention thinking about gender and sexuality and changes to gender and sexuality in society and within the church. And it's become one of the defining, if not the defining issue that they have uh, focused on really for the last 60, 70 years. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that concern, the anxiety that, that you that you noticed in the book and that's kind of coming up is a sense that these kinds of changes that are happening in broader culture not only are going to be affecting the church in some direct way in terms of undermining its own ideal teachings about the family, about society and so on, mm-hmm. but that those changes to society will also hurt society itself to such a degree that, that uh, they, they sort of were predicting the collapse of civilization even with, uh, with changes to gender and sexuality. They were drawing on a kind of broader conservative cultural framework that that saw the preservation earlier, the preservation of patriarchy specifically as a kind of cultural good and a value. And they very openly embraced the term patriarchy and patriarchal marriage and the patriarchal Mm -hmm. order as the ideal and sort of in in an anti-feminist move. And then later, as they softened and moved away from patriarchy as the ideal, they eventually embraced heterosexuality, which could accommodate more egalitarian marriages and a more egalitarian society, but as long as heterosexuality was preserved. So they they were able to kind of shift and change their own, uh, their own teachings while still being able to kind of focus on this anxiety as, as they're mutating their own ideas, mutating is maybe too strong of a word, but as they're changing their own ideas to address their own cultural changes because the church itself is changing. It's not just reactionary. It's also evolving and, and adapting uh, along the way. But this concern about these changing cultural values around gender and sexuality was also really striking at the heart of what were kind of core teachings in the church itself about the nature of gender, the nature of sexuality, and a concern that it could be lost in some way if it it weren't preserved. Hmm. And so they're, they're really trying to kind of shore up what they see as the weaknesses of gender and sexuality in society by using law, by using Mm -hmm. cultural pressure, by using their own teachings to preserve what they see as these ideals around uh, gender and sexuality.
0: Right. And I feel like, you know, I want to ask to see if it has any weight at all, but is any of this connected, any of this anxiety and interest in preserving a patriarchal heterosexual idea of the ideal family, is any of that connected to the social stigma of the erroneous assumption that many Mormons are polygamous and of Mormons wanting to maintain an image of respectable sexuality. Is that a part of this at all or no, not really?
1: Uh, it's 100% a part of it. So, so just to recap, the 19th century history of Mormonism is that they're really sexual outcasts in the United mm-hmm. States. Their practice of polygamy of plural marriage led to cold and hot wars against the United States government eventual uh, abandonment of that practice in the late 19th and early 20th century allowed latter-day saints to start to assimilate into american culture and american society and they do so by adopting what they see as again the ideal norms that were trying to be imposed upon them earlier of Mm -hmm. heterosexual monogamy and really embrace that as a part of the identity the church's own identity so much so that it becomes the way that they advertise themselves. And so you're absolutely right. They're really trying to react against a kind of old stereotype, an old set of assumptions about what Mormon identity is, what Mormon sexuality is, hmm. and are attempting to assimilate into American culture by adopting heterosexuality, by adopting patriarchy. The irony, of course, is that those very things then are going to lead Latter-day Saints to be on the outs again of, of normative right. American culture right. as those values are shifting and changing over time. So they're, in a way, trying to preserve not only those teachings for themselves, but that was sort of the vehicle of assimilation that mm-hmm. they had used. And they're very scared and very worried about sort of seeing that go away and finding themselves once again as sexual outcasts, as uh, hmm. you know, not being able to assimilate into broader American culture. Interesting.
0: So I'd love to cover a few basics with you. And I had mentioned earlier that one of the things I really like about your book is how You know there are many conservative religious communities that have opposed cultural changes to gender and sexuality, but you do a great job of highlighting unique Mormon ideas that have been at play here. And you explain in the book that there's been a tension in Mormon thought between insisting that gender is fixed, uh, meaning that a person has a set gender at birth, and the idea that gender is malleable. So I'm wondering if you could explain what you mean by that. What is this tension within the LDS Church between the idea that gender is fixed and that gender is malleable?
1: Yeah, it manifests in a lot of different ways, and and I I can't recap all of them, obviously, here, but Latter-day Saints have this sort of idea of what the human being is as a kind of eternal being that's kind of working its way through various stages of existence, various stages of progression or regression, as the case may be, and gender is a kind of a part of that story. And Latter-day Saints ended up kind of telling two, two different competing versions of how gender relates to that human being. One is that gender is sort of a part of one's pre-mortal spiritual existence. It will be a part of one's post-mortal spiritual existence. And there's really not much that can be changed about that. And so to not honor that sort of given gender is itself a kind of sinful act, potentially, right? Hmm. So mm-hmm. if you're you know, not being true to who God has appointed you to be or who you are sort of eternally in some sense, that's the problem. On the other hand, they've also taught that gender is actually a contingent feature of what the human being is. And to be at a sort of lower stage of existence, to be at a regressive stage of existence is to be without sexual difference or to be without gender in some way. And so enacting a preserving gender is a sort of mode of progress rather than regress in that eternal scheme of things. And so both arguments are attempting to kind of preserve, quote unquote, traditional kinds of gender performances. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they're kind of conflicted between these two ideas about what is the human person? Is gender contingent or is it something which, which can't be changed? And if it can't be changed, then why are we worrying so much about whether it is being changed or not? Right. And so hmm. it's that kind of fundamental Ontological understanding of what the human person is—that is—that's uh, informing a lot of LDS debates about this, and this is how it plays out in the way that they approach homosexuality. It's how it plays out when you think about women's rights issues, and so all of these things—the sort of doctrinal ideas—are playing out in the political sphere uh, as well. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, connected to that, uh, in the book, you make the point that the Mormon church's opposition to gender equality and homosexuality or same-sex relationships is connected. Could you explain a bit about how they're connected?
1: Yeah, they they see same-sex relationships really as a—and feminism as as sort of species of the same underlying problem here. And it's that sort of erosion of the patriarchal heterosexuality that they were trying to preserve— they're they're suggesting quite explicitly in the 1970s, again, this we're sort of talking about a historical iteration yes. of Mormonism that isn't really the same as it is today. So I, I want to make that clear. But they're suggesting that women who would go out to work would become lesbians because they're engaging in this mannish activity and hmm. that mannish activity is going to then corrupt their sexuality. And so they're seeing feminism, the feminism that's emerging in the 1970s and the gay rights movement that's emerging in the 1970s as jointly linked phenomena of this sort of objection to what we're calling, quote unquote, the traditional understanding. And there's all, all reasons why I want to complicate that uh, sure, understanding. Sure. But yes, they see those two things as linked. And therefore, interestingly, they see that the cure to both feminism and the cure to homosexuality is in a kind of reimposition of these traditional norms in some way. And so as homosexuality is a kind of species of gender fluidity itself, um, mm-hmm. that one sort of has mismatched the supposed desires is because they haven't become adequately feminized or they haven't become mm. adequately masculinized. And that malleability, that fluidity that can exist is not only the cause then of the erosion of these different, uh, of these different norms, but it's also the solution as well. And so they're attempting to then mold people. They're attempting to kind mm-hmm. of shape and adapt people into the norms that they're trying to have them enact and adopt in their lives.
0: Well, and anytime I hear that type of description, it, it just makes it sound like an admission that heterosexuality or gender is not obviously natural if it's so easy for someone to become lesbian because they've gone out—a woman has gone out to work. But I don't know if, if necessarily Mormon church leaders would say that the way that I just did. It seems that you're describing that, that they wouldn't necessarily put it that way, that there is actually a plan that God has for people, and it does lead to gender-normative heterosexuality is what I'm assuming
1: yeah yes and no and that that was hmm. one of the things that i expected to i expected to find exactly the way you describe it is that there was a kind of denial of the constructedness of heterosexuality there but i actually found that they were quite open about it hmm. um they're issuing manuals that are essentially telling people how to raise their children to become heterosexual you know yeah, really. there there's a very explicit acknowledgement And the reason why is because there's a psychological turn that takes over in the church um, in the 1960s and 70s. And this is coinciding with the broader shifts that are happening in American culture around psychology. And as, uh, of course, everyone remembers, in 1973, the American Psychological Association depathologizes homosexuality. And one of the things that is then happening in the LDS context as a reaction to that is a doubling down on some of the earlier theories of pathologization of homosexuality uh, Mm. that earlier psychologists were using. And Latter-day Saints are explicitly citing that literature. They're using it in their pastoral care, and they are drawing on these Neo-Freudian theories of psychological development, of uh, psychosexual development, as a tool for understanding why homosexuality occurs as the basis for its cure. And as the basis for a broader set of policies and practices and teachings that they then go about implementing to help preserve heterosexuality in culture, in the church, and so on. So they're actually quite explicitly Hmm. aware Mm -hmm. of the constructedness of heterosexuality and citing the literature in their favor to make that case. And they're saying, listen, fathers, if you're not present... Hmm with your children. You know, if you're working too much and you're not at home leading and teaching and so on, and mothers, if you're being too aggressive and not letting the fathers sort of take their role as the head of the household, then mm. your children are going to end up gay. Wow. And so they're getting parents involved in, in the way that they're parenting and the way that their relationships are constructed to help children grow up and to be the ideal heterosexual adults that they're supposed to be. So I was quite surprised at yeah. how explicit they were on the issue of the constructedness of heterosexuality.
0: Right. Fascinating. Thank you. So then to, to stay with that, I, I am curious then if uh, how much of this is still in the present day and, and how much is historical. And the In the book, you talk quite a bit about the Mormon church taking somewhat of a therapeutic approach to homosexuality, meaning that people could with enough of the right type of therapy and the right type of prayers, and I suppose enough grit that uh, lesbians and gay men could overcome their same sex desires. But uh, you say that the approach is shifting and in some ways now looks towards the afterlife. And so I'm wondering if you could explain that and what the present position on homosexuality and the place of gay Mormons is in the church today as you see it.
1: That's a a great question. There are a lot of competing streams. The past is never gone, of course, Mm. you know. But the church really has walked away from or or muted in in a number of ways. The earlier reliance on reparative therapy, for instance, um, Mm -hmm. the major organizations that used to exist that advocated this kind of work have dissolved, have gone away, similar to uh, the way that Exodus International and other ex-gay organizations in evangelical and Catholic communities have waned. In the LDS context, we've seen the same phenomenon in the last 10 years or so, and LDS leaders kind of backing away from that. They've also come to embrace one of the things that they were very concerned about in an earlier era, Latter-day Saints identifying as LGBTQ. Mm -hmm. Uh, They used to be very, very uncomfortable with that, but now it's not uncommon at all in LDS congregations to find people who identify uh, uh, as LGBTQ the church of course still prohibits same sex relationships almost really of any kind and there are in some cases quite harsh ecclesiastical sanctions on those kinds of things up into and including excommunication from the church hmm. so you know it's it's by no means a, a kind of ideal for for many latter day saints who are hoping to find uh, same sex relationships in those communities but where the church was even just 20 years ago, and especially when you can go back to the 1960s and 70s, it's really quite stark, the changes that have occurred. Again, by no means, I think even, even faithful Latter-day, LGBTQ Latter-day Saints wouldn't see this is such a wonderful utopia by any means, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but we're certainly starting to see some interesting changes. Now, what direction are those going to go in the future is difficult to say. Uh, And I think, again, that there are competing strains in the church and that that we might see further retrenchment, perhaps greater assimilation into the broader changes in society again. But right now, I think the church is kind of caught, as many churches are, in trying to figure out how are we going to deal with this issue? How far are we willing to go? What are the things that we can change and what are the things that we can't change and so on?
0: So I'd like to pivot a bit. You address race in your book, and I'd love to hear you talk about the connection between issues of race and Mormon teachings about gender and sexuality. It seems that Mormon leaders in the post-World War II period were especially nervous about racial integration and interracial marriage. So could you talk a bit about why Mormon leaders were so opposed to interracial marriage and broader racial equity?
1: When I first came to the book, I was really interested in the history of LDS conflicts over what kinds of marriages are allowed and what kinds of marriages aren't. And of course, the obvious place to go for that was plural marriage and polygamy. And there was a huge, huge fights in the church. The church schismed on on this issue in the early 20th century. And so I I was kind of curious to see, well, what are other times that LDS leaders and the community have kind of wrestled over the appropriateness of certain kinds of marriage? And then one day it just dawned on me, It was like, of course, it was so obvious that interracial marriage was the thing that precedes Mm same-sex marriage, the last time Latter-day Saints found themselves in a big fight with American culture over this issue and within the community itself. And so I wanted to look back on the debates about interracial marriage as a kind of earlier example and earlier iteration of how Latter-day Saints negotiated the conflicts between broader cultural shifts over racial integration and conflicts with the church's doctrines that prohibited racial integration at the time. So what was going on is that uh, Latter-day Saints held on to pretty fiercely, and again, these come out of broader 19th century and early 20th century theories of racialization that most Protestants and Catholics of some sorts subscribe subscribed to in some ways, but that the races were sort of divinely ordained and had sort of different roles in, in the world. And so Latter-day Saints were pretty strong about prohibiting especially black and white racial integration. They subscribed to older biblical understandings of the curse of Ham and the curse of Cain and mm-hmm. other kinds of, uh, of racial curses on, on um, people of African descent. And uh, that actually affected whether or not Latter-day Saints of, of African heritage could be ordained in the priesthood, um, mm-hmm. male Latter-day Saints. And that lasted up until 1978 when uh, there was a revelation that was received that rescinds that ban on racial discrimination around around the priesthood. And that uh, begins to kind of open up a, a set of changes then around whether or not interracial marriage could also be permitted. Mm. It was discouraged for a long time even after the mm. uh, official bans on it. But yeah, Latter-day Saints kind of had this, this big fight over interracial marriage. And I, it just seemed to be such a perfect analogy for the kinds of issues that were going to be happening around same-sex marriage over the last 20 or 30 years since then.
0: And out of curiosity, I imagine many listeners, if we asked them what their stereotype image of a Mormon community today is, my guess is they would say predominantly white. Could you describe what you think of as present-day issues of race in Mormon communities?
1: Yeah. You know, in in North American communities, uh, depending on where you are, predominantly white is definitely the best description. Uh, Of course, all throughout the country, but especially in the Southwest, there are large congregations of Spanish-speaking communities, Latino communities in various places like New York City, Washington, D.C., Atlanta. There are predominantly black communities as well. Mm. But you know, definitely the the broader sort of demographics of active Latter-day Saints tend to lean pretty heavily white. Right, right. So uh, to to switch
0: topics a a little bit to some pop culture, like many others, I've been watching The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. And before anyone judges me, religion's a prominent theme throughout the show's first season. And so one woman on the show who I believe grew up in, in somewhat of a prominent Mormon family has spoken quite a bit throughout the show's first season about Mormon ideas of perfection, and how that plays out, especially for Mormon women who, according to her, are supposed to not only be perfect or exceptional wives and exceptional mothers who raise good children, but also that Mormon women should be as physically perfect as possible, and that the pressure for perfection in all areas of one's life can be crippling, and what's curious is she both criticizes that and capitalizes on it. She owns a beauty business in Salt Lake City where people can get Botox and other beauty-enhancing treatments, but she explains her business success by describing Mormon ideas of gendered perfection, as she puts it. So I'm curious if you have a take on that. Is striving for womanly perfection a visible component of Mormon life today?
1: Absolutely. But uh, I'll put a big asterisk on that too. Um, (laughs) You know, it's very much a part of a certain kind of uh, regional iteration of Mormonism. Mm. And, And that's one of the things that I think is kind of worth pointing out and where some of the debates about how this particular emphasis on perfection gets manifested. And one theory is is the one that is put forward in the show and, and that many people have popularized as well, this sense of Latter-day Saint women are expected to sort of embody the ideals of womanhood and to look beautiful and, you know, to be a particular kind of woman. And I'm sure that that exists, I, I, don't, I don't doubt it or deny it whatsoever, I think it's uh, it's pretty obvious in, in, in many ways, though how much that deviates from, again, broader cultural pressures is, is sure. hard to identify. The other theory that people have put forward, and it's one that I you know I'm not totally sure isn't isn't right either, is the sense that there's a kind of broader uh, Utah, Arizona, las Vegas, Southern California, kind of monoculture around plastic surgery, around Botox, around mm. a certain ideals of beauty that latter-day saints who live in those areas are right. sort of part of that regional, uh, thing. It's funny because I, you know, I've lived most of my life in uh, Latter-day Saint communities, or been familiar with Latter-day Saint communities in the Northeast and in uh, the Northern Midwest, and I don't really see those kinds of beauty ideals hmm. showing up so hmm. much in these communities here. So, so I'm hesitant to say that all Mormon women feel this particular pressure sure. and see it maybe as more a regional and maybe even a, a social and economic demographic uh, uh-huh. among Mormon women, where you see those kinds of things start to show up. Right.
0: Well, and I like, you know, your first point that it's hard to disentangle what would be just a broad American emphasis on how women should look and be versus what's specific to Mormonism, that disentangling that is quite complicated. Yeah. So the last thing I'd like to ask you, if there's someone who's listening today who is Mormon and transgender or Mormon and queer in whatever way, what do you think they should know about the Mormon church today?
1: Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, they, they probably know as well as I do, if, if they live in these communities, the particular struggles that, that they might face. I, I think that there are maybe two things that are probably worth pointing out, both for those communities within the church and for those who are outside the church and curious about what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, one is one that I've already mentioned that I think that the church itself really finds itself in, in the current moment struggling with this question of what kinds of accommodations are we willing to make. Even since the book has been published, the church has actually come out with new guidelines on how transgender members in the church, for hmm. instance, should be treated in the church, including using their preferred names uh, and so hmm. on. Again, it's not one that is you know a full acceptance. There's still limitations on the kinds of ways that transgender members can participate in the church. But even from what it was five years ago, it's a major yeah. change, right? And if you go back even further and and are really looking at the horrible things, I I think I can say, and most Latter-day Saints would agree today, that the church really didn't do a lot of great things on these issues in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, but also that the church isn't there right now, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So so I think paying attention to the progress and the accommodation, though it's certainly slow and there is a lot of blood and tears along the way to, Mm -hmm. to get us to this point. The other thing that I think is worth thinking about and wrestling with is whether the kind of hope that many uh, LGBT members of the church have and, and perhaps people who are outside of the church, whether or not the church will fully accommodate in the way that they did with racial integration and with interracial marriage where those things really just aren't really an issue so much anymore, at least not formally. Again, not to say that racism doesn't still exist in the church or anything like that, but the kind of formal doctrines that are being taught, uh, the formal restrictions that were once there, those aren't there anymore, right? So would we see those same kinds of changes on on this issue? And I think that one's a little bit harder to predict. And so for people who are sort of pinning their hopes that any minute now things are going to change, you know, I, I think that they would need to probably take a take a different perspective on, on either their willingness to stay with a community that might not change or the patience that they're willing to endure if they are hoping for a kind of full change where same-sex relationships, which is sort of one of the last major hurdles uh, mm-hmm. that the church has not accepted, whether those ever will be. You know, it's, it's, right. it's hard to say. Right.
0: Well, thank you for that important um, response. It's very helpful. And thank you for this interesting conversation. That is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Taylor Petrie, and I'd like to thank our production editor, Anna Donge. You can find an excerpt from the book, Tabernacles of Clay, Sexuality and Gender in Modern Mormonism in the upcoming March issue of The Revealer at therevealer.org. And you can purchase Tabernacles of Clay wherever you currently buy books. I'm Brett Crutch, I will hope you join us for our next episode next month. We'll be discussing the popularity of the prosperity gospel among Latino Americans. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast, with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Anna Donch. If you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org.